Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. We actually base our calendar off of what Jesus has done. Like, we, we, we do so many things in light of what Christ has done, specifically the resurrection, and so, so people may have questions about the resurrection. Did it, did it really happen? Was it something that took place? Or, or, or is it something that Christians just made up? Is it, is it a made-up story that, that, that people just, just came up with? Or, 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 or is this this religious thing that people are using to control people? Well, I want to say this about the resurrection. It is one of the most attested events in the history of humanity. Uh, There are, according to the Bible, at least 12 post-resurrection eyewitness accounts of people seeing Jesus. The guy by the name of Apostle Paul, who we'll read about later on in the sermon, he records in a book called 1 Corinthians that he writes that the resurrected Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. There was one instance where he appeared to over 500 people at one time. Now, now you may be saying, oh, the Bible made that up. Well, if he made that up, he's, what he's saying is this. I, this happened in the lifetime of, of, of the eyewitnesses that I'm writing. I'm writing this during the lifetime of some of the eyewitnesses. So the people who are around to see this, they're still alive, and I welcome them to come and refute this story. But no one refuted the story because if some of us make up, if we were to make up the story, it's, it's a few hundred people probably in this room uh, right now at least, and I'm willing to say that if, if a couple of us, at least a hundred of us, was going with a story, if it wasn't true, if it wasn't true, some of you are going to walk out of here and say, no, nah, they made that up. That's not really, really true. But if all of us agreed on something, if we agreed that I fell off this stage and somebody pushed me and I fell off this stage and we all agreed on that story, if I wanted to take someone to court because of your eyewitness testimony, even if the judge didn't see it and we didn't record it, it would be stated as fact and it would hold up in court and I would win my case, not because it was recorded, but because of your eyewitness testimony. And Paul is saying 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus at one time. Matter of fact, one of the eyewitnesses that saw Jesus, who didn't become a believer until after he saw Jesus resurrected, was Jesus' own brother James. He didn't become a Christian until he saw Jesus get up out of the grave. And so those are a couple of the things that, that people grapple with. Another thing was that people oftentimes say, well, Jesus died, but they just moved his body to another location. Well, if, if whoever wanted to stop Christianity from spreading, they could have easily went to the grave where Jesus was buried, dug the body up to show proof that he actually was dead and that he did not raise, was raised from the grave. Another thing is, is this, is that some people say that, that the gospel is, is this made-up story. Well, I want to tell you this. Here's how you know it's not a made-up story. If you read the gospels, who were the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb? The first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb were women. Let me tell you that, that, why that's a problem. That's not a problem today, but it's a problem in antiquity because if you wanted to spread a story, if you wanted to make something up, if you wanted to be believable, you didn't have women be the first eyewitnesses. In antiquity, women were not taken serious. Women's, word, women's words were not believed. If you were a woman and you came forth about anything, you were instantly discredited simply because you were a female. So if we were making up a story about Jesus, We wouldn't have women as the first eyewitnesses. 
We would actually make it be men. This is so crazy that when the women go after they've seen the empty tomb, they go to the male disciples, and the Bible literally tells us that the male disciples thought that what the women were saying was nonsense, and the Bible literally says they did not believe the women. Even the men who were with Jesus, who, who, who spent time with him, th that knew that these women were a part of the band of disciples, they didn't even believe the women their eyewitness account of what happened to Jesus. And the last thing I want to say is this. Some believe that it was all an elaborate hoax, that Jesus' followers just came up, made up this story, that, that they just wanted to make up this story. Well, well that, that sounds all fine and dandy, but there came a time when Jesus' disciples' life was on the line. And if they want to continue to perpetuate this story about the resurrection, it was a matter of life and death. But you know what happened? If you know anything about the apostles and the disciples that were with Jesus, when it came down to it, when it was a matter of life and death and they would be martyred for what they believed, they stuck to their story. Now, look, I know we got some honorable people in here, and, and we got some close friends and family members in here, and, and, and maybe your family member will go along with your story that you know is not true, but if somebody put a gun to your family member's head, let me tell you, your family member is snitching on you today. <laughs> they are snitching on you today. The only reason they will go along with the story, if their life depended on it, was if it was true. Theologian. This is a theologian by the name of Paul Little. He writes this in his book, Know Why You Believe. Here's what he writes about the resurrection. He says this. Here's a quote that he made. He says, people will die for what they believe to be true, though it may actually be false. They do not, however, die for what they know is a lie. Here's the best and final option. Maybe the option is, is that the tomb was empty and he actually got up out of the grave. Maybe that's what actually happened. Maybe he got out of the grave and rose with all power. And, and, and so that changes everything for us because this was not the case of some resuscitation. This is not a body being brought back to life to only die again. But this was a physical resurrection of a body that was raised from death to life by the power of God that would never die again. And since that is true, it changes everything. It changes everything. You know what that means? That, that, that means that there's a reason for you and I to hope in spite of everything that we see going on in our culture because our greatest nemesis, sin and death, have finally been defeated. And this is why the resurrection is good news. And if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, Paul said it like this in Romans 6 and 5. He says, since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was, meaning this, that this life is not the end. That, that the sin that you struggle and you grapple with, the challenges that you face in life, the heartbreak that you go through, the mistakes that you continually make, one day if you are united with Jesus, we will live in the reality of the resurrection with Christ. And so this is not just hope of the hope of the world. This is the message and the story that, that we cannot afford to tell. This is the message that we should tell everybody. And so today we'll read and study a passage of scripture written by, by a guy named Luke. Luke is a physician who writes this book called Acts. He wrote two large books in the Bible, Luke after his name and in the book of Acts. And he is very concerned with keeping accurate accounts because he is a physician. And so he writes this historical account by a guy the name 
named Paul, who's an apostle who was once a persecutor of Christians. He wasn't a Christian. He actually hated Christians at one point. He met Jesus on this road called Damascus. Jesus changed his life, and so he dedicated his life to sharing the good news about what Jesus has done for him. And in this passage, he finds himself in a place called Athens, which is in Greece, which you can still go to today. And he is there, but he encounters some interesting stuff. And so here's a couple things we're going to see today. We're going to see four things, and we're going to learn this about God today. Number one is that God creates. Number two is that God cares. Number three, God commands. And number four, God calls. We're going to see that he creates, he cares, he commands, And he calls. And so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. The book of Acts. And we're going to read verses 16 through 34. And this is Luke's account of the Apostle Paul in a place called Athens. Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. And here's what it says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, and so I want to tell you who them is. Them is Silas and Timothy, who are his ministry companions, these guys who he was rolling with doing ministry work. This was, these were his, his partners, his compadres. These were, these were his homeboys, his ride or dies. And so they got separated because Paul got kicked out of a place called Thessalonica. Then he got kicked out of a place called Berea, and now he finds himself in the city of Athens. And here's what it says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, well, what is this arrogant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus in the resurrection. Verse 19 says, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may may we learn about this new teaching that you're presenting? Because what you say sounds a little strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So one day Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, this is a sermon, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And here's Paul's message. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Here's why he did this. He did this so that they might seek God. Perhaps they might reach out and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of our own poets have said, some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, shouldn't we shouldn't think that the divine nature, God, is like gold or silver or stone or an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Basically is what he's saying. We can't make God up into something. God is what God is. 
Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance when you didn't know God, you didn't know any better. God now, in light of the knowledge that you have, commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus the Aparagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you today for this beautiful Sunday. Lord, I pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray today for people who've come from near and far, and we've all come in the room from different walks of life, from different cultures and different ethnicities. God, I pray today that we would see Jesus just in a whole new way. I pray, God, we, we would embrace his way of life. I pray today, God, that we would surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for the saints today, those who are walking with Jesus. I pray that they're encouraged in the word today. For those who are not believers, God, I pray today, Father, that you would warm their hearts, God. I pray that they would turn from their sins and, and make a decision to trust you. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you would just hide me and we would, we would see Jesus. I pray as I talk that it's not my words but your words. And so, Father, I pray for the person who has a stony heart. I pray for the person who is resistant. I pray for the person who's indifferent. Lord, I pray today that you would do a supernatural, uncommon work in the hearts of your people. And so, Father, we thank you today. We praise you. We give you honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. The people of God said amen. amen. My sermon title today is The Resurrection Changes Everything. The Resurrection Changes Everything. The Apostle Paul in this story finds himself in Athens, Athens, Greece. Athens is not an ordinary city. It's actually a city that's known for its cultural and intellectual and philosophical acumen. It's a cultural, it's a cultural center. Matter of fact, some people call Athens at that time the cultural center of the world. If, if there was a place or a city that represented philosophy, that, that represented intellect, it, it was Athens. A Athens is the home of Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. These are names that we've heard of before because they, they were great philosophers of their day. And so this is a city that is a cultured city, a city that is learned. People are, are smart. They're, they're open to hearing new things. They're open to new ideas and new ways of thinking. And it, and it seems that when Paul gets there, it seems that he's there by accident because Paul doesn't make a plan to go to Athens. He doesn't make a plan to get there. Like some of us have post-Easter Sunday, we have post-service plans. Some of you are already knowing where you're going to go to brunch after we finish here. Some of you are waiting for me to get finished. <laughs> some of you left pots and pans on the stove because you're waiting for me to get done. You're hoping that your house is not burned down, that you heard that this church doesn't stay all day, so that's why I'm going to go there <laughs> so I can have the rest of my day available. I heard it gets done pretty quick. And I heard I won't have to touch my neighbor either, so that, 
that, that works for me. That's the kind of vibe I'm looking for on this Sunday morning. But it seems that Paul is there by accident because he was in a place called Thessalonica preaching the gospel. They didn't want to hear what Paul had to say, so they kicked him out. He went to a place called Berea that wasn't far from there. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. Actually, the Thessalonians followed him from Thessalonica to Berea, and they tried to fight him there, kicked him out, and he ended up running from them in the place called Athens. So it seems that he's there by accident. But how many of you know in God's economy, there is nothing that's an accident? You might think you're here today by accident because somebody invited you. That's not an accident. God has you right here on purpose today. That that you might think that wherever you live and where you're lot in life and how dissatisfied you are, you thought that you would be further along in your life. You thought that you would accomplish this stuff. And if that had happened to me, I would have achieved this. this. Guess what? God is not surprised by where you are in life. God has you right where he wants you. God has you right where he wants you. And so Paul is not there by accident. But what we know, what you may not know about Athens or what you may not have heard is not just a place for intellect. It's also known for its religious devotion. They, they were what we would call polytheistic. They, they worshiped many gods, right? right? This idea of one God was foreign to them. They, they worshiped many gods. There, were a God, there was a God for the sun. There was a God for the moon. There's a God for the clouds. There's a God for the sky. There's a God for the rain. There's a God for the, for the heat. There's a God for everything. And so they, they were polytheistic. They worshiped a lot of gods. And so when you entered into the city of Athens, there were large statues and shrines all over the place that were dedicated and built to the gods to worship them. And so through all, all throughout the city, you would see the, the, the statue dedicated to Africa. Aphrodite or to Zeus or Apollos. They had all of these uh, idols everywhere. If you drive into the city, instead of seeing skyscrapers, you just saw idols as large as skyscrapers. They they were visible from everywhere. Athens is reported historically to have had at this time a a population of 10,000 people, but the interesting thing is they had 10,000 people, but they had over 30,000 idols. They had more idols than people. There were more statues dedicated to the gods than there were people in Athens. They, they, they were idolaters. They, they, they had many gods. They were devoted to, to their, their, their religious pluralism, meaning they, they worshiped many gods. And so they were like, okay, so, so in case one of these wrong, we can, we, can, we can put our eggs in more than one basket. And so when Paul gets there, Paul doesn't just get there and just shake his head, he, he, he examines his surroundings. And verse 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. It's, it's almost to say that Paul took note of his surroundings. He, he did more than just take a cursory glance at the things that were around him in the city of Athens. He, he made a deliberate observation at the things that were around him and I want to encourage you, this is what we should do. We, we, we should do this when we enter into our city or into a neighborhood. We, we should do more than just see where we're going. We should make an intentional observation of our communities because we live there. And so we should care about where, where, where we live. And, and, and we should see our community the way that God does. It's easy to see your community or see an impoverished neighborhood or a violent neighborhood and shake your righteous head and wag your finger and say, look at those people. But maybe we should see the communities that, are, that, are, that, that we consider less than the way that God sees them. That when God sees people in these communities, he doesn't just see them as throwaways. He, see them, he sees them as people who have been made in his image. 
And so Paul gets to Athens and Paul is grieved. It says his spirit is, is deeply distressed. He felt this indignation. It's the same word that is used when God sees the idolatry of, of Israel in the wilderness in the Old Testament. And so when we think about what brings about God's anger, it's always idolatry. Idolatry is what brings about God's anger. And so when Paul sees all of these idols, he is vexed by the idolatry that is running rampant. It it almost gives the idea that Paul is so angry that that it makes him want to cry. You ever been so mad, you were so angry that you was crying? Like, Like there's regular crying and there's regular mad. But you ever been so mad that it brings tears to your eyes? This is what is happening to Paul, he, he couldn't just see it and ignore it. He couldn't just see it and dismiss it. He, he, he knew that there was something beneath all of that idolatry. That's the thing about idolatry. There's something underneath that there's more than, than meets the eye. There's more than just they're worshiping many gods. This is not just their problem. This is also our problem. Because Athens has idols, but we also have idols. Let me give you a working definition of what idolatry is, because really this is our our, our major problem. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. That's first. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope, our happiness, our significance, and security. Anything we set above God as an object of our time, our thoughts, our love, our affection is an idol. Idolatry is not just a passive indifference to a false god. Idolatry is actually worshiping lesser gods. Whenever you worship something that is not God, it's not that you're just worshiping something else. You're worshiping something lower. You, you You are subconsciously or unintentionally worshiping something that is lower. It's intentionally aiming low when you don't have to. It is, it is settling. Idolatry is all idolatry is, is an affair of the heart. Meaning, meaning you're giving someone else your time, your attention, your devotion, someone else other than God. So, yeah, you're saying, I know, Pastor, I don't have any idols in my house. I don't have any idols at my job, my, my route to work. Uh, even though I go on I-4, I go downtown, I see some buildings, but I don't see any idols, so I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm clear on idolatry because I don't have any shrines and I don't have any temples. But I got news for you. An idol, something that we, an idol is not just something, some shrine. We have a couple in our culture. The number one I- idol in our culture is self. Some of you worship you. You think about you first. You think about what you're going to get for you first. And if you have room for other people, then you'll get to them. The number one idol in our culture is self. Then, then it's success. Then it's someone else. Then it's sex. Then it's security. And that's just the essence. That's just the essence. Some of us worship food. And if we're being honest, some of us worship money. Oh, I don't have no money, so I have that problem. <laughs> Let me tell you how you, can, how you can be broke and money still be an idol. You hold on to it for dear life, and you act like if you let $1 go, your life is going to be over. You can't sleep at night. 
You're always concerned. Somebody asks you to help them, you're like, I ain't got it. That, you should have I ain't got it tattooed on your arm somewhere because you never have it. You're not willing to help. It never comes to your mind to help somebody in need. Somebody can say, I need gas money, and you say, as a Christian, I'm going to pray for you. How about you don't pray for me? How about you go in your pocket and provide $5 for me to be able to get something? Oh, you thought you just, was, you just were frugal. No, you have an idol. I'm frugal. If your shirt costs more than what you have in your bank account, you have an idol. You see, ultimately, there are two types of people in this world. There are those who are worshiping God, and there are those who are worshiping idols. Because everybody is worshiping something. Everybody is worshiping something. There is no such thing as an atheist. Everybody believes in something, and everybody is worshiping something. Either we will be worshiping the creator, or we'll be worshiping something that was created. Those are the only two options. You are a worshiper, whether you admit it or not. I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I'm this. I'm that. I don't know what I believe. You worship something. And this is what Paul was disturbed by because he was, he was disturbed not because they were idolatrous, because all idolatry is is misdirected worship. It's misdirected worship. Underneath all of the idolatry of our culture and theirs is a hunger for God. You're trying to fill a void that can only be filled with one thing. You think you want this, but that's not really what you want. What your soul is, is, is communicating to you is that what is missing in your life is God. It's not, a, it's not another job. It's not more money. It's not, it's not, it's not a marriage. It's not children. It's, it's God. And this is what Paul is vexed about. But he cared enough about what people believe. He cared about enough about God's creation that he met them with compassion. He engaged them. So Paul wanted to show them the way to the one true God. And so Paul's solution was for him to share the good news. And so I told you that Paul may have been there by accident. Paul was seemingly in Athens by accident. But it was actually an assignment. You are not in Orlando, Florida by accident. You are here by assignment. I don't know if I like this job. You are not there by accident. You're there by assignment. And I don't like my lot in life. You're not there by accident. You're there by assignment. I'm so dissatisfied right now. It's not an accident. That's an assignment. Stop asking what. Start asking who. So what it tells us is this, is that Paul did what he always does. He gets to a new city, and he goes to the synagogue first. And so it says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and those who worship God. And then Paul didn't just stay in the church. He didn't just stay in the synagogue. Paul then went to the marketplace. 
And it says that he debated with the philosophers of the day. Paul went where the people were. That was his normal pattern. Paul didn't just stay in some religious cul-de-sac. He didn't just stay in some religious gated community. No, no, Paul went to where the people were. And while he was there, he would share the good news about Jesus. But in this particular case, he ran up against two different schools of thoughts. These people called the Epicureans, and he ran against these people called the, the Stoics. And so the Epicureans, for all intents and purposes, they were practical agnostics. Here's what they believed. They believe that everything happens by chance. They believe that none of life is connected together. There's no grand story running through the tapestry of life. They, meant, they thought that everything was just happenstance. Everything is just an accident. Uh, and if there is a God, he's too far away. He's too detached to get involved with us lowly human affairs. God is far away. If he does exist, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I don't really know. But we shouldn't be concerned with that anyway. And so the idea of the Epicurean is that, 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 hey, here's what our goal in life is. Avoid pain, pursue pleasure. Avoid pain and pursue pleasure. That, that doesn't just sound like an Epicurean belief. That sounds like a modern-day belief. Avoid pain, best life now, don't go through nothing, take the easy road, cut everybody off, make, make sure I protect my peace, all that other nonsense, and, and just avoid pain and pursue pleasure and whatever makes me happy. This is the Epicurean belief, and they believe that you should avoid pain and pursue pleasure because after this life, that's it. The soul just evaporates. There's no life after death. Biggie Small was wrong. There's no life after death. There's no life after. Just live this life, and then it's over. It doesn't matter. There's no judgment. There's no, no reason to fear death because nothing happens after death. There's no reason to be motivated by future reward because none of this matters. The Stoics, however, believed in reason and thought and logic. They did believe that everything connected together, but it was a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the mind, but, but at the same time, they believed that the world was divine. They believed that everything is a God. That sounds like our culture, too. Peace, God. What's up, God? You are not a God. God does things that we cannot do. God can heal the sick. We can't. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. God is omnipresent. He's not just in Orlando. He's in Omaha. God is everywhere, all at the same time. God is God, and we are not. The Stoics believe, however, that, hey, everything is God. Everything is connected. And Paul debated both of them. They both had responses. The, the Epicureans called him an ignorant show-off. They, they, they called him an ignorant show-off. Literally means they, they called him a seed picker, meaning that he actually picks other people's ideas and makes them his own. He would take other people's opinions and regurgitate it as if it was his, his, his own stuff. And so, so if you, you, you're in academia and you've ever uh, uh, had to write a paper, one of the things that you know you can probably get kicked out of school for is this thing called plagiarism. Right? And, and so they're calling Paul a plagiarist. If they're calling Paul a plagiarist, you're just stealing somebody else's ideas. Therefore, we probably shouldn't listen to you. Okay, let me, let me bring it a little closer. Maybe, maybe if, 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 if Paul was a rapper, what the Epicureans are saying is that, Paul, you, you bite off of other people. That they're saying, Paul, uh, uh, you, you have a ghostwriter. But Paul, you, you can't be top five dead or alive because you have a, a ghostwriter. So, so, so it doesn't count because you don't write your rhymes, Paul. You, you're not an original thinker. 
That, that was the Epicurean response to Paul. The, the historic response to Paul was that he's a xenophobe. Like, like they called him a preacher of foreign deities. They're actually talking about Paul saying foreign deities because he's a foreigner. But notice that they say deities. The Bible tells us that he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. But even for them, it still didn't equate to him talking about one God. The idea that anybody would worship one God was a foreign concept. And so this idea of monotheism, this worship of one God, would have been revolutionary for the Greeks. They, they had no category for resurrection because, every, because there was never any coming back from death. So here's what happened. Paul was waxing poetic. Verses 19 through 20 tells us that they bought Paul before the Areopagus. Right, really, the Areopagus was an aristocratic court of about 100 men. They were wealthy. They were well-to-do. They had high status. And so when you came to Areo, the Areopagus, which is also called Mars Hill, when you came there uh, uh, or when you came to Athens and you were in the marketplace and you were debating if you were good enough and if you riled up enough of a crowd, they would then bring you before the Areopagus to then consider whether you should be worthy of listening to, if you could continue to be in the marketplace. And so they would give a person an audience before the Areopagus, which is the city's hub where all the activities takes place. You would be able to, to talk and give a speech before the council of men, sort of like a TED Talk. You know, if you get a TED Talk these days, there's some qualifications to get a TED Talk. You've got to have some, some, some outlandish, crazy achievement in life. You, you've got to be a notable person. You have to bring a, a great, fresh, new idea that is worth being listened to. And so Paul has to go before the Areopagus, and here's what they say. They say, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? And it says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. That's all they wanted to do was hear new stuff. They wanted to hear new ideas. They love listening to podcasts. They were some podcast listeners. They, that's what they love to do. So, some of them were always in search for new information so that they can find something new to worship. And so they, they were always searching but ever, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And you know what I thought? We're no different. We're in a generation who love, we love information. We love some YouTube channels and we love some podcasts. Here are a few, 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 few of ours. Here's a few, few of ours. You, you may know this guy. You, you may know this guy. He's going he's gonna to come on the screen eventually at some point. You, you may know this guy. This guy's name, he's Joe Rogan. He's got the, he's got the largest podcast in the world. He, he's got 11, I think 11 million subscribers to his, to his, to his podcast. And so he, he was famous because he interviewed this guy by the name of Edward Snowden, who worked for the CIA, who had revealed that the government is spying on us, which you already knew that. You already knew that when you say, if you say dog, then you get all these dog things coming up on your social media because they heard your phone, they, they're watching, right? And so, so he's, he's number one. That, that's Joe Rogan. But I, I hear what you're saying, Pastor, that's not my cup of tea. I don't like that joke, and I, I like this Joe. I don't like that. I don't like Joe Rogan. I like this Joe. I like this Joe. This is, this is my, my favorite Joe. This is my favorite joke. Some of you listen to, listen to him. Some of you listen to him. That, that's one of our cultural, uh, cultural commentators. But maybe, maybe you don't listen to Joe Rogan or, or maybe you don't listen to Joe, Joe, Joe Budden. Maybe you listen to this guy. Maybe you listen to Ben Bishop. Pastor, I'm conservative. I'm conservative. I like conservative politics and I like conservative ideology. I am, I am pro-life and I right-winged, and I believe in free market capitalism, and therefore I am a traditionalist, and therefore I listen to Ben Shapiro. Th then you might say, okay, I don't, I don't rock with Ben Shapiro. I like a little righteousness, righteousness and a little ratchetness, so I don't listen to him. I, I don't listen to Ben, but I listen to The Breakfast Club. 
I don't listen to him. I listen to them. I listen to, I listen to them. And so here's my point. Here's my point, people. Instead of rejecting the culture, Paul is conciliatory toward the culture. He establishes common ground with the culture. Because all of those, all those, none of those guys are Christians, that doesn't mean that they don't have some good ideas. It doesn't mean that they don't have things that are, that are redemptive or, or that could help us in some way, shape, form of another. It's not that they can't give you life uh, altering or life transforming content, but it is to say that we can't put them in the wrong place and let them be our source of life and, and guidance for, for all things, that there's actually a greater source in life than the culture. And so Paul said, says he stood in verses 22 through 23, says Paul stood in the middle of the area and said, people of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every respect. For as I was passing through, I observed the objects of your worship, and I even found an altar inscribed to the unknown God. Notice he starts with common ground in their admission that there is a God that they don't know. They reserved a place for a God that, that's just unknown to them. They're like, I, we don't know. Yeah, we have all these other gods, but there's one that, there's something that we just don't know. So we dedicated an altar to him. To him. And, and so they're admitting that they don't know. And Paul is saying, what you don't know, you actually can know. That, 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 that is not hidden from you, but, but there's an answer to this, that, 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 that you can actually know. And it gives a sense when it says that the unknown God is almost as if to say that they're groping in the dark, knowing that something is there, but they just can't seem to find it. Here's the thing. You may be saying, well, I don't believe that there's anything. Well, that's just fundamentally not true because God's law is written on the hearts of men. There's a reason why everybody would probably agree wholesale that murder is wrong. There's a reason why we see injustices happening to people. Even the most ungodly person says, that's not right. That's because God has written his law on our hearts. And not only that, we can see God in the things that we can see God when we walk outside. One, one scholar says when we look into the creation, we can see that God has left his autograph everywhere. That God has left his autograph everywhere. We, we are surrounded by the revelation of God every single day. One, one time during the French Revolution, it was said that some people with the Enlightenment movement said to some Christians, we will put down your steeples and your crosses so that you will not be remembered, reminded of your superstitions. So Christians said, that's cool. You can tear down our cross and our steeples, but you can't rip the stars out of the sky. Because even if I can't see the cross... I can look at his creation and know that he's still there. He, you, you see him by the things that have been, been made. I am making a case to you that, that the revelation of God is clear and again can be perceived by the things that have been made and the unknown God can be known. So here's what Paul's speech is. He says, therefore, what, I, what you worship in ignorance, I, I proclaim this to you, that the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in shrines made by hands. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God doesn't need anything. He is the one who gives life and breath and all things to all people. Not only that, from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth. He's determined 
The appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. So the first thing I want you to know is that God creates. God is not the product of some human ingenuity. God is not the product of human wisdom or or human hands. He is a self-sustaining, sovereign God who needs nothing but gives people everything that they need. He created the entirety of humanity from one person talking about Adam and determined the appointed times and boundaries of where all of us will live. And so here's what this means. That means if God is the creator, we all have our roots in God, whether we believe that or not. There's a starting point, which means this. If he's appointed the times and places, you are not an accident. You need to know that this morning. Where you are right now, it is not random. It is not happenstance. It is not by chance. This means that God is not detached from your reality. He is intimately concerned with where you are in life. God knows exactly where you are right now in life. He is not a stranger to your lot in life. He is not a stranger to your hurts or your disappointments. If you are here and you will often wonder, does God see me? Does God know me? Does he know what I've experienced? Does he know the family that I was born into and that mess? Does he know the far less than ideal circumstances? Does he know about the fatherlessness? Does he know about the motherlessness? Does he know about the pain, the trauma, the lack of guidance, the poor role models, the bad examples, the neighborhood I grew up in, the chaos of my life right now, the current dilemma that I'm in, the things that I'm trying to figure out? If you're wondering those questions, the answer is yes. He has appointed everything about your life, both tragic and triumph. All I'm trying to say is this, is that God is with you. God is with you. Your life is not an accident, which brings me to the second point. Not only does he create, but he cares. Paul said this in 27 through 29. He did this. Here's why God appointed the times where you are. This is why you are where you are in life. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Let me tell you this today. God is not hiding. We don't find God because God is not lost. You know who's lost? We are. You can't even get to the west side of Orlando without turning on your map. God don't need GPS. That's for you. God is not lost. You can't even get to Tampa. It's a straight shot from I-4. You still turn on your, your navigation. on your, Still. You don't even trust yourself to get a straight shot to Tampa. It's straight down I-4. You, you're like, I, I got to turn this thing on because I, I might miss the exit. He cares. He did this so that we might, we might seek him and find him. He's a gracious God, and he invites us to seek him. Here's why we've been made in his image. But our problem is that we've settled for idols. We've settled for the lesser things. And we consume ourselves with them. Here's what you need to know about an idol. They always disappoint. And God uses that disappointment and causes us to think, why am I constantly fighting, stressing, struggling, striving, constantly going through it, and this thing is breaking me. Why why is it happening? Because God said so that they would turn and seek me. I'm using your lot in life so that you can know you have no power. 
that, that you can turn to me. I, I, I'm the only fixer. I'm the only healer. I'm the only one that can give you guidance and direction. It's not you. It's me. He, he turns us towards him. He uses all the things in our life. If it's good, he says, turn to me because I'm the one that brought it to you. If it's bad, turn to me because I'm the one that brought it to you. God is doing this so that he can have a relationship with us. I love the way that theologian Richard Pratt put it about idols. Here's what he says. He says, all idols will eventually abuse. This abuse can take the form of, among other things, greed that devours, intellectual pursuits that lead to ignorance, lovers who disappoint, the church should have said amen, amen. national leaders who fail and get arraigned and arrested. The difference with God is that he will never abuse those who serve him. In his mercy, he will lift his faithful images to glory. People are to know that their security and significance are rooted in the God that they image. These false idols and ideologies and false religions cannot save us. And so this is a call for us to abandon idolatry and worshiping false God. This is a call for us to lift our hearts and our eyes higher and trust in the one that created us, not some lesser object or false God of our own creation. The same God that created the world and everything is in it is the same God that is the God of the heavens and the earth. He's the same God that created you. You no longer have to grope, grope, grope and grapple around in the darkness trying to figure out the meaning of life and the certainty of your immediate future or your destiny. It is certain in God. And so if you have that information, if you believe today that God is creator, if you believe that he is the God who's appointed seasons and times, that he's appointed where we would live, if he knows everything about our lives, that he made us, if you have that information, God says that you should turn and repent. You know, one of their, their, their philosophers said it like this, we can forgive a child who is afraid of the dark, but the real tragedy of life is when grown men are afraid of the light. And some of us today are afraid of the light, but what does this cost me? What happens to me? If I turn and repent and I give up this thing that I've made up in my head, what happens if I turn away from the other things that I'm leaning on, whether it be my own ideology or my own thought process or the way I've configured that the world actually works, but I know I have no idea, but I'd rather not turn and embrace God. Here's the thing. We have options. Verses 30 through 31 gives us this, that God not only creates, he not only cares, but God commands us to repent. Here's what it says in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Here's what that means. It means that if you have knowledge of God, if that the resurrection is true, that means that there are things that we should repent of if we have not trusted in Jesus. You're no longer blind. You're no longer ignorant. God has been patient with us. Second Peter says that, that, that his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. That if God has been bearing with us and just waiting for us to get it together, and God has been waiting for us through our seasons of sinfulness and wickedness and our refusal, our refusal to turn to him, that that means that God has just been giving us time to repent. It doesn't mean that God has been forgiving us. It just means that his kindness has been giving us time to 
bring us to repentance because one day, the same way he determined the time that we will be born, he has determined the time when we will be judged. You see, here's the thing. Everybody likes justice until it's time to talk about God's justice. We'll march in the streets for injustices, and we should. We think humans should be justified or justice or, or, or not deal with injustices. But when it comes to God, we somehow think that God shouldn't have any justice done. But the Bible tells us this, that he is a just God, that the wages of our sin is death. If somebody kills somebody, all of us are like in unison, they should go to jail. If somebody hurts and harms a child, we all agree in unison. If you're saying that that person should go to jail, we all believe in justice. But when we sin against a holy God, somehow justice is absent from our vocabulary. But the truth of the matter is God is going to judge us. And the person that is going to do the judging is his son, Jesus. He's already appointed the man that is going to judge us. And he proved this to us by raising him from the grave. The one who defeated sin and death is the one who is going to judge the world. Here's what you need to know. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was God's proof that he designated him to be his agent of righteous judgment. The resurrection doesn't only mean that he's going to judge the world. The good news is that the resurrection brings about the possibility of a relationship with God. Here's what you need to know, and I'm almost done. Through his son Jesus, God has made a way for us to be reconciled to God. This is good news. Through the voluntary sacrificial death of his son Jesus, the penalty of our sin has been incurred on the cross. The sin that separated us from God and was punished by death. We needed a mediator and a substitute, and Jesus voluntarily laid down his life and incurred the punishment and penalty of death that we deserve. He died on the cross, was buried in the grave. He defeated our greatest nemesis, sin and death, and destroyed our last enemy by being raised to life from the dead. And the resurrection is God's confirmation that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. I'll take it one step further. When Jesus rose from the, de- from the grave, he closed the casket on all other false religions and false idols and so when he says i am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father except through me you know why he can say that because he's the only one that ever got out of the grave so the resurrection puts everything else to bed and the way to be reconciled to god regardless of what you have done is not to trust in your own self-righteous work but to trust in the finished work of Christ. He has brought forgiveness, life, and relationship with God to all those who will put their trust in him. You know what separates Christianity from everything else? It's that we don't go to heaven or paradise or all of this. We we don't get there by our own merit. Everything else teaches you be a good person. Do more good than you do bad. You can undo your bad by doing enough good deeds. You can tip the scales in your favor. And even if you do that, there's a hope that maybe one day you go to heaven. Christianity says you can rest from your labors and from your work. That salvation is not something you earn or you work for. It's a free gift given to you by God. 
Would you rather work to earn God's favor? Or would you rather trust in the one who already did it for you? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says this. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so no one can boast. He creates, he cares, he commands, and finally he calls us to respond. The last couple of verses says that when they heard about the resurrection, some began to ridicule him. Others were kind of interested and said, we'd like to hear more about this. Paul left their presence. Verse 14 says, however, some people joined and believed. One of the Areopagites, one of the men that he stood before and gave this sermon to, trusted and believed in Jesus. So my question today is will you trust in your own work or will you trust in his? Maybe you're here today and you think if I'm just, I'm a, I'm a good citizen, I do my job, I go to work, I take care of my family, I'm a father to my children, I'm a husband to my wife, I went to college, I got a degree, I go to church, I'm honest on my taxes. <laughs> it's income tax season at the end. I've never, I've never gone to jail. I've never been in the prison system. I was in the prison system, but now I'm not any longer. I've returned to my life and rehabilitated my life and turned around and made some changes. All of that is awesome. But none of that can't save you. Well, I'll just pray on my own. I'll just do what I, I'll just do what I feel is right to me. Man, feelings are dangerous. Do you know that in the morning you can feel one way? And by the time lunch happens, you feel completely different about the way you did about something in the morning. Something in the morning that you thought you was going to tear somebody's life up about. By lunch, you don't even care no more. So you're going to base your faith off your feelings? Your feelings are fickle. Your feelings have the attention span of a gnat. The only thing that we can trust in is something that has already been done for us. To, to trust in ourselves or some religious works or some religious activities or praying some prayers or doing some activities or, or going here or going there or doing all these things or keeping these, these laws or, or keeping these commands. Maybe if I do that, I'll go to heaven. This is what they teach me. That is all fool's goal. Salvation is a gift from God. All he asks us to do is turn from that idolatry and repent and trust in what he's done for us. And this is why the resurrection changes everything because he can be trusted. Whether you believe or not, one day you will have to face God and give an account. And I'd rather stand before God having trust in the, trusted in the one that already went before me and took my penalty on himself. I was in the barbershop this past weekend. and um, No, I was, in, I was somewhere else, actually. I was sharing the gospel with everybody this weekend. I wasn't inviting people to church. I was, just, I was on one this weekend. I was fasting. I thought I was Paul or somebody. 
And I, I met this guy, and, and I, I happened to be, be fasting a couple of days, and, and it was a day I was fasting, and I was like, yo, I'm fasting. So, so he, he was like, what are you fasting for? Like, I don't, people fast? I was like, yeah. And um, he told me what background he grew up, and, and, and I was like, yeah, man, um, are you, 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 you practice, are you religious at all? And he was like, no, nah, not really. I don't, I don't really believe anything. I don't, I'm just, just living. And I said, man, you, matter if I, you mind if I share the gospel with you in 30 seconds or less? So I gave him a speech. I don't know what I said. I was freestyling, but it was good. <laughs> it was good. He said he wanted to hear more. Jesus' resurrection, sins, life in Jesus, something, whatever. But I said, imagine this. You and I commit a crime together. We're, we're co-defendants. We go to court the same day. And uh, we, we're guilty. We, we, did, we actually did what they accused us of. We did. We're guilty. They had proof. They had evidence. We couldn't get away from it. Couldn't get, get up, up under it. And, and so the day of sentencing was there, and we were before the judge. I just I want you to imagine. I told him, I said, me and you are there in the court together. And um, when the sentence is about to hand it down, which is punishable by death, a man walks in the courtroom from the back. And he stands in front of our table and he says, Your Honor, I'll take their penalty for them. And the judge looks over behind him and sees us. And we were once guilty. And he says, not only are you not guilty, you're righteous and you can go free. He's going to take your penalty and I'm going to let him. And he took the sentence of death for us and let us go free that's Christianity and if you're wondering why Christians do what they do we're not doing anything to earn God's favor we're doing it because we found God's favor we're doing it because of what he already did for us when he walked in that courtroom of our lives and stood before that judge and stood in front of us and said put it on me judge I'll take the sin they committed in 03 and in 99, and in 97, and in 87, and in 77, and in 67, and 2019, and 2020 when they got bored and was doing dumb stuff, and in 2021, and last week, I'm going to take all of it on myself. Just let them go. Y'all are free. We see this man now, and we do what you do to anybody that gave you a gift that you can't repay them back. You just tell them thank you. You do everything that you can. You shower with gifts knowing that you could never repay them because they gave you something that you couldn't buy. That's Christianity. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.